Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, episode 32, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hey, the Becky Nader and I are together again. This has been like the summer of... It's been crazy. The summer of crazy. That's I've, what I meant to say. I think I came back on a few weeks ago and was like, I'm back. And then I was and, like... And I'm gone J- again. JK, I don't have any time to record. <laughs> becoming a perpetual problem, but I'm working on it. Yeah. So this is so exciting to me though. Because I, I know we're I, in the same I lo- room. I love doing this with Becky. So. And we're gonna do like we're gonna do our like real zoom in Bible thing that we normally do and yeah. haven't done in a while. We oh. haven't done And you know what this is gonna be this is gonna be like a, a an exciting unveiling because we're actually gonna talk about this book Spiritual Grit that I'm almost finished writing right now. I've got like I have to take the last week of August off to kind of finish it, but I'm at 68,836 words right now, and that might be like bumping the upper limit already, and I have a little bit left to go, but we're going to talk about some some stuff that I have been learning and been blown away by as I've been writing this book about what it means to have spiritual grit in our life. So we're going to uh, extract something from that today. That fits under our umbrella theme for August, which is all about relationships. So what we're going to focus on today is our relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is it is the most important relationship we have in life. Past your spouse, past your best friends, past your, 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 your kids or your extended family, the most important relationship we have in life is with the Spirit who lives in us. And in the book, Spiritual Grit, I have a whole chapter called Doing Life with the Invisible Rabbi. (laughs) Kind of a crazy chapter title, but the Invisible Rabbi is my way of describing who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life. So that's what we're going to dive in today with, is a fascinating look at what it means to live our life in close intimacy with the Spirit who lives in us. So if you're a new listener, my name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life and general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and I'm here with my co-host and friend, Becky Hodges. We call her the Becky Nader, if you're new, so please do not refer to her only by Becky. Hi, From guys. this point on, she is the Becky Nader because she nates things or naders things. She naders things. That's the correct way to say it. It sounds like I neuter things. Yeah, but it's not that. That's not what he means. <laughs> so so uh, let's kick this off a little bit, and and uh, Becky has promised to stop me with silly questions if anything comes to mind as I describe this, and we can count on her to do that, right? Yeah, because yeah. I think that Rick knows a lot about this thing called the Talmud and I'm guessing that I just you may have just heard that word for the first time. So I'm going to make sure that he slows way down with you and catches us up on his great knowledge about things like Talmud. Okay, so we've heard the word rabbi a lot. Uh, if you've kind of grown up in the church or not even grown up in the church, you know, you kind of have this idea of what a rabbi is. 
um, even in contemporary society. And, and the idea of a rabbi was embedded in ancient Jewish culture. And we think about a person learning from a rabbi in kind of like a classroom setting, because that's the only context we have. If you want to learn something from a rabbi, you expect to go and listen to somebody lecture and uh, with their great knowledge and teach you stuff. That's what teaching means. But the actual rabbi relationship with student, it was radically different in the time of Jesus, and it's important to understand what that was like, because when we consider um, what a rabbi-student relationship is like, we need to understand the, the specifics of what Jesus meant, or what the disciples meant when they were referring to that. So that's what we're going to explore at the start here. Now, was a rabbi like a pastor? Oh, there's the first silly question. <laughs> so a rabbi was a uh, not as ubiquitous as a pastor is today. There's pastors on every corner. There's more pastors than there are Starbucks. So they were harder to find. Yes, because you could not become a rabbi until you were 30 years old. Oh, by the way, Jesus didn't start his public ministry until he was, what, 30. Oh. So he did not begin his public ministry until the time uh, that you were considered mature enough to be a rabbi. And the way this worked was rabbis had spent, you know, if you're spending till you're 30 years old, um, all of your time sort of learning the ways of God, learning Scripture, learning how Scripture kind of integrates into daily life, until you're 30 years old, you've pretty much at that time spent more than half of your life doing that, before you even start being a rabbi. So these were the most learned people in their culture, the most respected people in their culture, because they had so much wisdom and leadership within the spiritual community. And and you didn't go see a rabbi every weekend like we do, because, you know, I was just reading in uh, the story of Hannah recently, and, you know, they would travel to the temple, but that was kind of a distance. They usually went on, like, religious holidays, or, yep. but it wasn't like, every week you see your rabbi. It could be rare that you saw a rabbi, okay. but the way this system worked is if you were a Jewish boy, because only boys were available for to be considered as rabbis, uh, from an early age, uh, when you were going through your education, those who showed great promise would be allowed to go to the next stage of their education instead of uh, siphoning off into their family business at that point. So at the next stage, if you showed even more promise, now the first stage was just simply memorizing Scripture. It wasn't even trying to understand Scripture. So like Awanas. <laughs> Mic drop for the Becky Nader. <laughs> they went to Awanas and they memorized Scripture. You memorized... And sometimes they got to do the three-legged relays. <laughs> I'm rarely, tracking with you. Rarely. I'm tracking. So at, at the first stage, it's all memorizing Scripture. Uh, if you're good at that, you go to the second stage where you're not only memorizing more Scripture, you're trying to understand Scripture and analyze it and debate it. If you are showed even more promise at that stage, you are allowed to try to attach yourself to a rabbi. That was the final stage of this process. And the way this worked is because there was not that many rabbis, and more students than rabbis could take on. It was kind of like, you know, America's Got Talent or Survivor or whatever you want to call it. You had to make the best case for yourself, and then the rabbi would invite you to take his yoke upon you. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. Mm -hmm. He's using rabbi talk there to say, I'm choosing you. 
So was this like one-on-one, like I can only have one student at a time, or did a rabbi, if they had this kind of level relationship, could they do up to five? Or They had multiple students. There okay. was no set number, but they had multiple students. As but many not, as they could handle. But not that many. Yeah. And Because here's what they did. The, the, the Talmud, that's what the student was called, T-A-L-M-I-D, in case you're wondering how, uh, how that is spelled. The Talmud, uh, at this point, had to convince the rabbi that they were they were the one that should be chosen because of their skill, ability, and promise for the future. If the rabbi determined, yes, I want you, they would formally say, I would like you to take my yoke upon you. What that meant is that the Talmud then had to leave his family, leave behind his family business, leave behind his friends and his school, everything, and go live, physically live with that rabbi until they were 30 years old. And so what what age would you be, do you think? Like would around you have to 16. be late, around 16. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for for a good 15, you know, years of your life, you're just every day living with this person. Right. And the way that you would learn from the rabbi was some of it was like what you would imagine teaching is like. You would hear the rabbi talk about the scriptures for instance. But 90% of it was simply being immersed in the presence of that rabbi. What you're there to do is to learn how the rabbi thinks, what he likes and doesn't like, how he eats, how he walks. You're you're there to be impacted um, and influenced by the essence of that rabbi. So you kind of catch the DNA of the rabbi that you're attached to, and you do that by living with them 24-7. So these Talmuds were basically formed into the image of the rabbi they were attached to. Does that language sound familiar, too, that that we are formed into the image of Jesus because we are Talmuds attached to the greatest rabbi ever. So um, teaching had very much less to do about the transfer of information. That was minor compared to the transfer of heart that happened in this relationship. And so when we talk about uh, following Jesus as our rabbi, what he means by that when he says, take my yoke upon you, is become immersed in my presence— until who I am infects who you are. So you begin to have all of the habits that I have. You think like me. You do things like me. That's what it meant to become a disciple. And how does this happen in an effective way for us? At the time, in the ancient times, this process, immersive as it was, still meant that one physical human being had to hang out with one other physical human being and capture as much of the rabbi's essence as they could, that had limited impact. Yep. And you can see the limited impact in the disciples of Jesus in scriptures. They were close to Jesus, but and they learned as much as they could in their physical relationship, but there was an explosive thing that happened when Jesus left and the Holy Spirit came. This is why Jesus was so... Uh, Uh, so committed, so earnest about telling his disciples, it's about to get better for you, because as your rabbi, our relationship can only go so far. What's about to happen when I leave is that you're going to get a rabbi inside you. His name is the Spirit, and he's going to come teach you from the inside out, and you will uh, experience my essence from the inside out. No longer will I be an outside influence in your life, I will be embedded in you, able to teach you from the inside out. 
when we were talking about this last week or a week, maybe even longer, um, it might have been a couple of weeks ago when we were planning out episodes for the month. I kept thinking, I like to sometimes when I read um, stories, especially in the Old Testament, just because they seem so radical, like Hannah just weans her child and then just drops him off at the temple and is like, here, have my son. I'm giving him to you. It like, just seems so radical. Like, where would you even do that here? So I was trying to picture in my head, like, what what would this kind of thing look like today? Like, so what kinds of things are we immersing ourselves into so much that we're influenced by them? And particularly things that have nothing to do with Jesus. So I I thought of some ideas that I wanted to share just to kind of connect it to our everyday lives of like, how do we end up doing this? And obviously if you're a parent, your child is kind of like a Talmud, you know, they're mimicking you. My sister just had a new baby and she, I keep saying, Oh, he has your smile. And she's like, he just does whatever I do. It's not like, I don't know if it's his smile. He just sees my smile all day and he copies it, you know? Oh, I have to say something here real quick, Becky. This, this is such a great thing that you just said that it needs to be reiterated. Parents are often worried that like, and I count myself among this, uh, Oh shoot. I wish I hadn't said that to my kid. Oh, that's going to really affect them the rest of their life that I said that to them, or I had that kind of argument. The truth is, kids are impacted by your essence. Whatever's at your orbital center, whatever is most important Not to you, you... accidentally. Right. What they sense what is most important to you and what's at your center, that is what's forming them in truth. Yeah. So one of the ways that I thought about we do this is we get obsessed with reality television shows. So like The Bachelor or Survivor or like even just, you know, there's celebrities that you can watch them live their life. There's even just like people who aren't celebrities that live on farms and do stuff. And we kind of immerse ourselves in these people's lives talk about it everywhere. You know, we talk about it at work. We, you know, we think about it all the time. Tabloid magazines. Even bloggers, now that Instagram has um, stories, I follow a few bloggers and I they do these kind of like interesting behind the scenes sneak peeks into their lives. And I find myself kind of fascinated by the way that they live and sometimes even influenced by it. Like, oh, that's how she makes her almond milk. I'm going to start doing it that way. Or you could even say, oh, that's the way they make decisions. Or, oh, that's what they think is good. Yeah. Or, oh, that's what they don't like. That's the causes that they're really, you know, focused on. Um, one of the bloggers, she's a vegan yoga, yoga blogger that I follow um, for recipes. Like, that's what she shares. But, she, you know, I've recently learned that she's very passionate about the homeless community. And she shares in her stories kind of things that her and her husband are doing. And I find that interesting. It has nothing to do with what she's blogging. It's just her life. Um, social media, I mean, we follow all kinds of people. We get immersed in influence influenced by that. Even television shows like Friends or How I Met Your Mother, where you're following a group of people for, you know, a set amount of time over a set amount of years can start to influence you. You know what? My daughter is uh, almost 15. My youngest daughter, Emma, is almost 15. And uh, she, this summer, wanted to watch old episodes of Friends. And I said, I'm not that comfortable with it, because when I actually watch Friends for the first time in 20 years... um, you know, there's some aspects of that show that I really don't like, the casual way they treat sex and, and things like that. So I said, um, you can watch this many episodes, and I want to watch some of them with you so that we can talk about some of what this is about. And what I've noticed over the summer as she was watching these episodes is because you study the way the people in that show relate, they're starting to set a normative standard for relationship 
this happened to us when we were kids. You know, yeah. when we watched the shows we watched, we watched them to see how other people react in situations. Mm-hmm. And we're learning from them on how to be in mm-hmm. situations. And it happens passively, but it's actually profound. It can really influence you. So these are ways that we kind of the opposite of what would it look like? I think, you know, as we talk about, we're going to get deeper into um, the Bible today, which I'm super excited about. Um, but, you know, as we're thinking about what are the barriers to us living every day um, with the rabbi inside of us, some of that is maybe we're spending too much time being influenced by something else. And we need to be cautious and aware of what else is influencing us so that we can allow that. So we're going to jump into, we're going to do something kind of fun. I was actually really excited when I, when Rick said, oh, we should do this. I was like, oh, that would be super fun. So we're going to look at the end of the story. We're going to look at kind of Jesus's exit and even his resurrection. Um, And then we're going to jump a little bit into Acts, just like, so end of John and then beginning of Acts. And we're going to look at some contrasting stories between the end of Jesus's ministry and the start, really the start of the disciples ministry um, in Acts. So here we go. Take it away, Rick. So uh, this is uh, just for reference, John 16 and 17. In the Jesus-centered Bible. In the Jesus-centered Bible. And then the beginning of Acts is what we're going to uh, take a look at. And we're just going to kind of hop around here a little bit, because there there are two whole chapters, and if you have a Jesus-centered Bible, the, these two chapters are almost completely read, which means that Jesus is he talking. He had a lot to say at this point. That's right. He's talking for two chapters, and the reason there's this long stretch, think about how difficult it was to create a written version of what Jesus said. Every word was precious back then, and because this was very difficult to capture and and retain, and they captured two whole (laughs) chapter-length stretches of something Jesus was talking about with his disciples, because this was so important that Jesus was reiterating uh, this great truth. I'm just going to pick up in verse 5 of chapter 16, and we'll we'll just read for a little stretch here, and then we'll stop. Jesus is again talking to his disciples. The cross is directly in his future, so he's he's like giving them his last set of instructions and understandings about what's about to happen. He's trying to give them a reality check, because they cannot imagine what is about to happen. Jesus knows they can't get their minds around it, so he's trying to give them a heads-up about what's, what's going to happen in the near future. So in, in verse 5 he says, But now I'm going away to the one who sent me. And not one of, ask, one of you is asking where, am I, where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. Of course we are, Jesus. You keep telling us you're going away. This is a sad thing to us. But here's what he says. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the Advocate won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. So let's just stop there for a second. He said the Spirit will convict the world of sin, and that the world's sin is that it doesn't believe in him. So I'm, I'm going to uh, kind of build a bridge here. What Jesus is saying is that you, not believing in him doesn't mean I believe Jesus existed. Believing in, in him means that we trust him at the most intimate level, and he, he's saying this is the sin of the world, 
that you have broken relationship and you won't trust me. But the Spirit is going to come and convict you of that and help you to trust me. This is really the end game of everything. What the triune God wants is a restored relationship of intimacy with his beloved creation. And in order for that to happen, we have to learn how to trust at an intimate level again. Go and, ahead, Becky. And Jesus even knows at this point, this is real close to the cross now. He even knows that his his disciples are going to run like scared children after he dies. They're going to deny him. They're going to... They're going to be scattered and they're going to be, be running scared. And even now, you know, w- when you think of the disciples, he is constantly coddling them along, even though he, they have witnessed more than anybody his power and strength. But he's constantly coddling Why are you crying again? Why are you, you know, why won't you trust me? Why won't you believe in me? And I think what he's trying to tell them is, look, guys, I know that you're not capable of doing this. Look, I, I know that you're, it's going to happen even after I die. You're going you're gonna to deny me. You're going to scatter. You're going to run. Um, but it's okay. Dudes, it's okay because this other thing is coming, and it's going to make you super powerful. Here's what he says the Spirit's job description is going to be. This is in verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So he's essentially saying, the Spirit is going to convey to you my essence. The things that have flummoxed you, the things that seem like a mystery to you, the things that I do and say that don't make any sense to you, the Spirit's going to come live in you, He's going to be your invisible rabbi inside, helping you understand my heart. No longer will you have to wrestle and work to understand me. You'll have a helper inside who will help you understand everything that I'm about. You think about these these young um, boys who were trying to understand, they were being schooled and, and um, taught to try and understand something that was so much bigger than what they could possibly understand. I just was hanging out with one of my friend's kids, and I, I love doing science experiments with kids, and he's four. He's, you know, super cute and four, and he is trying to understand what a fingerprint is, and I'm trying to explain to him the concept of fingerprints, <laughs> you know, and, and we're like, all the science experiments had to do with fingerprints, but we spent like a good two hours doing these science experiments, and he, I don't, I still don't think he understands what a fingerprint is, <laughs> but he thought it was really cool that we got to like put, you know, chocolate on things and stuff, so... But so you think about these kids that have been trying to understand the rabbi, how much more difficult is it for us to understand our triune God? And to, to here he is, he's on earth and he's trying to be like us and he's trying to use our language. But he knows even with that, it, we're, at a, we're at a limitation because we need this thing called the Holy Spirit to come in and kind of translate and help us understand things that we're like toddlers, and we can't really understand. That's good. And uh, later in chapter 17 of John, we're going to skip forward here. Um, what's happening in John 17 is Jesus is praying out loud on purpose so his disciples can hear his conversation with his Father. He doesn't always do this. Sometimes he goes away and prays alone. He wants to have an intimate conversation with his Father in front of the cross 
He's not quite there yet, but he wants all of his disciples to hear how he talks with his Father and what he's talking to him to him about. And in verse 21, he says, he says something just blatant. I pray that they, all of my disciples, will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. So I'm going to stop there. He kind of goes on and reiterates that in a different way. What he's saying is so intimate. He's saying, my prayer for them is that we would be in one another, I in them, they in me, in the most intimate way possible. And Jesus, I believe, even though he knows what's about to come, is giddy with excitement right now, because he knows the only way that will be possible is if the Spirit comes, because the Spirit is what allows us to have Jesus in us, and us in Him. It's the most intimate relationship we can possibly have. That's why it's the most important relationship in our life. So Jesus is saying there's a the, the Advocate, the Spirit is coming. Um, it's necessary that I go away for the Spirit to come. Oh, guys, this is going to be so good. Everything that you've seen and experienced in me will, will all make sense to you as the Spirit comes and helps you to understand all of this. I know you're confused and afraid right now, but that's not going to last for long because you have a helper coming who's going to make it all clear for you. If you haven't read this chapter in a while or, or ever, this is a great chapter. I really encourage you to um, get out your Jesus-centered Bible. Um, or any Bible, really, um, and read John chapter 17. The whole thing is completely in red, and it's a really great interchange between him and God. And just his explanation that he's trying to explain the way that things work. So then in Acts uh, chapter 2, the disciples are now post-resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has ascended to the Father. They are, quote-unquote, on their own now. Now, this is the same ragtag, unorganized, disbelieving, distrusting, uh, fearful group of people we left back in the Gospel of John. Um, these, these people uh, had a very difficult time understanding, what are we supposed to do now? Um, in fact, before Jesus appears to them on the beach and on the Sea of Galilee, they go out fishing all night because they don't know what they're supposed to do, so they go back to what they know to do. They just don't know what's next for them. Then you get, it, you get into the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes, the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, now they have the invisible rabbi inside them. And then they become like superheroes. Oh my gosh, what they become is extraordinary if you compare... Confident? Oh. <laughs> Bold? <laughs> now, remember this guy, Peter, you know, who at the fire... Ran but, like a child? Right, because he was afraid. And you or I would too. Yep, we If would. somebody was questioning us... And, and trying to attach us to a renegade group that likely all of you would be executed if you were, if you were arrested, just the way they were going to execute your leader. And maybe you were like, maybe I imagined some of it. That's I'm right. Not sure. I'm not maybe sure. Maybe I'm a fanatic. Jesus? Jesus who? Oh, of <laughs> Nazareth? Hmm. So th- this is that group of people. They're just like us. They're afraid. They don't know what to do. Then you get into Acts. The Holy Spirit comes. And what does Peter and the other disciples, what do they do? They go right to the temple. (laughs) They go to where the largest crowd is they can find. And Peter says this in verse 22 of chapter 2 of Acts. Hey, people of Israel, listen. So he's like, hey, everybody, listen to what I'm about to say. Um, 
God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, and then he goes into this prophecy that David gave about the Messiah. But think about this. Peter, before, was running away from a little girl. Now he finds the largest crowd he can find. He silences them. Yeah, he silences them, said, hey, listen up. And then he jabs his finger at him and says, you're the one who betrayed him. You're the one who killed him. What happened to this guy? I think what happened to this guy is the beauty of what Jesus promised. This very scene is why Jesus was so giddy. He knew that this was going to happen, that when the Spirit came, he would not only help us understand the heart of Jesus, but he would help us know what to do um, and give us the courage to do it. So Peter now, uh, all of his life experience as a man of great strength, who was very much willing to take risks, now is energized by the presence of the Spirit in him, and there's a clarity about Peter that you never see again. I don't know if, if you guys have ever read Case for Christ, but this the Case for Christ is a, a real. Lee Strobel was a real, um, in, you know, investigative Skeptic. reporter. Yeah. He didn't believe in Jesus. He set out to prove that he didn't exist. And this particular sequence of events was one of the major reasons why he said there is a Christ, because these disciples went from being totally different after they received the Holy Spirit, and and. And from that point on, and in fact, you know, Peter would go on to be crucified upside down because he was so adamant that he would not be crucified the same way as Jesus. So this is a this is a big, powerful moment in the Bible. You know, it's it's almost got to have like, you know, like action movie, like music behind it. You know, this is a powerful time. There's a a deep change. And I I I always think about this because the same is true in our life. If Jesus is real, then you're going to live like this, you know, and and people will notice and they'll start to they'll they'll start to believe as a result. And you're not going to live like this because you you have tried so much harder to get better at it. You're going to live like this as a natural outcome of having a intimate relationship with Jesus facilitated by the spirit who lives in you. So toward the end of chapter 2, Peter's still talking to this crowd. Let me just read you what happens um, after he first (laughs) lays the blame on them and starts to speak the truth with a kind of clarity that is startling. Toward the end of that, he says, "...each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins." He's saying, hey gang, Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah, You need forgiveness of your sins from him. This is the very kind of thing that Jesus said that got him killed by the Pharisees. When he started talking about forgiving people of their sins because he's the Messiah, they said, that's blasphemous, you're dead, man. Peter is reiterating that claim right now. He says, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And get this, verse 41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day 
about 3,000 in all. Oh, my gosh. Can so, you imagine that? Rick got back in July from the Jesus Center Gathering, and one of our our fellow pigs that was there that has been listening to our podcast, she got baptized. And that was such an emotional moment for you. I mean, it, could it you was, imagine? Yeah, it was powerful. 3,000 baptisms in a day and just how powerful that would have been. Yeah, we saw so this is the first time they've done this at the Simply Jesus gathering where they ha- they actually baptized people in a clean horse trough out in a field. And uh what was powerful about that is watching 20 people, about half of them young people, get baptized and you're you're so right that 3,000 people baptized in one day. I mean, it would be I would be weeping. Yeah, it, yeah, I was weeping with 20. So <laughs> who knows what I would I be doing, but this is such a, a powerful moment. And it's because of the very thing Jesus promised was about to happen. The Spirit in us is everything. This is what facilitates our intimate relationship with Jesus. So in in the book I'm about to finish called Spiritual Grit, which, by the way, will be out um, in early 2018, and we'll get, give you a little bit more information about the, that at the end of this uh, episode, but in, uh, in Spiritual Grit, an entire chapter uh, in the first part of the book is about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. So if you're going to immerse yourself in the presence of someone, like right now I'm sitting next to Becky, and Becky and I didn't really know each other well prior to a year ago or so. Uh, We didn't work with each other that much. We didn't know each other. But since then, I've been around Becky a lot, and I have been changed by being around her. Uh, There's lots of ways I think and act that are different because Becky's presence has influenced changes in who I am. But how do we do that with Jesus? I mean, we can't see him or touch him. We can't have a normal conversation with him. So how do we become immersed in the presence of someone when there's all of these factors that are kind of odd factors keeping us from really being impacted by him? So in Spiritual Grit, at the end of this chapter called Doing Life with the Invisible Rabbi, I lay out the the practices that Talmuds and rabbis had— as a way of trying to understand how these things map to our own journey with the Spirit. And for me, it was transformational to look at our my relationship with the Holy Spirit through the filter of these five things. I'm just going to give you what these five things are in kind of thumbnail version, and then later on, if, if you get the book, you'll get the whole enchilada, what these things are like. But the, the first thing... Um, is an eager submission to the Spirit's authority in our life. So when a rabbi invited a Talmud to take his yoke upon him, what that Talmud was agreeing to do was give that rabbi a spiritual authority in their life. Like, this is something we can give or not give as human beings. God has said we can give him authority in our lives, and it's basically saying, I'll abide by not just what you tell me, but your example— you're, I'm, I'm going to learn under your authority. I'm going to take your example of life into me and begin to pattern my life after that. So we have many examples throughout history of people who have attached themselves to a mentor in life, and they have uh, committed themselves to submit to that mentor's authority in life. You could be an artist, a musician, anyone who wants to be truly great at something. You have to give over some authority to your mentor in order to grow. And that's essentially what a a Talmud did with their rabbi. A second thing they did was 
they had to uh, immerse themselves in their rabbi's particular approach to the truth. But one way they did that was this number two thing, is a passion for wrestling with God's Word in community. So the, the Talmuds would form what are called yeshivas, where they were a community of fellow Talmuds who were all learning from their rabbis, and they would get together to try to work out, what does this look like in everyday life? Like, for instance, uh, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. Well, what does that exactly really look like? Can we rescue a cow from a well? which is one of Jesus' references. Can we rescue a cow from a well on the Sabbath? Is that considered work if we do that? The yeshiva is where the Talmuds tried to work out, what does this exactly look like in everyday life? So that's also something we do in community now to immerse ourselves in the presence of Jesus. We look at the Scripture and the stories of Jesus, and we work that out in community. We try to understand it in community. This is something that... I mean, this is something that we're we're doing a really bad job at as a Christian community right now. If you have been in a community like this, where it's a free-for-all of, of uh, avid, energetic conversation about who Jesus is and what it means for our life, you know it's the best thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing better than if that kind of environment. If you're all on the same page. But even, even in when social you... media communities, man, we're doing a really bad job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we're 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 so much fighting each other. Yeah, yeah. Number three on this uh, list of ways that the Talmud had a relationship with the rabbi back in ancient times is a commitment to asking real questions in real circumstances about real issues. So the rabbis at this time encouraged a slew of questions from their Talmuds. Hmm. They wanted their Talmuds to question everything about life and how life was to be lived. Um, in faithfulness to God. So in our life with the Spirit, we ask a lot of questions. Instead of assuming we know the answers, we live a dependent life with the Spirit where we're always asking questions about, what does that mean? What do I do now? I need your guidance. How should I approach this? What should I do now that I've screwed up? Um, We are in a mode of constantly asking the Spirit questions. Number four is an openness to living transparently in a critical thinking environment. That means that um, the rabbis really did not follow a set curriculum, for for instance, or a program. They, They formed and shaped their Talmuds by just simply observing their behavior, then asking probing questions. So the Talmud basically said, I expect you, Rabbi, to examine every aspect of my life, to scrutinize mm-hmm. me, and I expect that to happen, and I expect you to ask me questions and push back against what you see. So you're, you're essentially living in a perpetual greenhouse. <laughs> Why did you think, say, or do that? And so you're responding to that. So, so formulas and recipes were anathema to this process. It was an on-the-way kind of relationship where the rabbi would use what was happening right then in the Talmud's life, or what was happening right then around them, to help them understand what was true and what wasn't true, how to live and how not to live. The final uh, thing—oh, actually, I have two more things. The fifth thing was a desire to emulate every aspect of the rabbi's life. And that means you come into the relationship with with the sense that, I want to emulate how I see the rabbi live their life. And that means that you live close enough to Jesus to understand the things that he did and didn't do, the things he liked and didn't like, 
so that you can catch the essence of his heart. The real crucial thing here is, you know, we call this podcast paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, and what we really mean is paying ridiculous attention to his heart, Mm -hmm. that we are far more interested in his heart than in his recipes or formulas, and that's where we typically go in the Church, because if you understand his heart, you get infected by his heart. So that's an aspect of our life with the Holy Spirit, that we really focus on the heart of Jesus, and out of that we emulate um, what he does and who he is. The last one is a determination to live personal beliefs more than talk about them, to live our beliefs more than talk about them. So the Talmuds, the the central way that they were quote-unquote graded in this relationship was not what they said, but how they lived. So as they the, the rabbi would know they were growing and learning if the Talmud was living a life that was different than they were living before, that they, they would know that the DNA was seeping in when they saw them start to think differently and live differently in their everyday life. And this is really um, our way forward as well, living our beliefs, not simply assenting to them. That's another aspect of our life with the Spirit. So there's a little snippet from Spiritual Grit in this chapter. This is going to be a good book. I'm excited. (laughs) If any of you are interested, if you haven't joined our pigs group, please do that. Um, There's instructions in this episode on how you can do that. If you don't know what the pigs are, the pigs is a group of people who we get together. They're in a private Facebook group. We email them, pick their brains. Um, They're very close in community to each other. And we want you to experience that same community so you can join the pigs. But we are going to be reaching out to the pigs soon to form Rick's Spiritual Grip book launch group. So um, if you're interested in that, then join the pigs and you will get invited to be a part of that. Yeah. And let me give you just a 30 second overview of, of the premise of this book, Spiritual Grit. There's been a lot of research done in uh, the research world in the last two years in particular about this word grit. Um, It's emerged as a crucial um, driver or engine for uh, success and perseverance in life. So uh, researchers, including uh, the most prominent one, Angela Duckworth, who wrote a book called Grit that was a number one bestseller, are looking into um, what grit really is. What what is why does one person persevere through challenges and opportunities while another doesn't? And so they're looking into what is grit and why is it important. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the reason that I wrote this book is as I studied, I was fascinated by this research. Um, as I studied it, I realized there was two things that the researchers shied away from, that they acknowledged were true but didn't know what to say about them. And they're central to this whole thing. One of them is, in order to have grit, you have to have a foundation uh, that is a passion for something higher than yourself. And the researchers don't really know much of what to say about that. Well, a passion for something higher than yourself, there is no passion higher than ourselves than a passion for God. So that's our foundation. So part one of the book is, how do you develop a passion for Jesus? It doesn't just fall out of the sky— how do you develop a true passion for him? The second thing that the researchers didn't know really what to do with is they know what grit is and why it's important, but they don't know how to grow it. So Angela Duckworth sort of famously in her TED Talk that k- kicked the whole thing off says at the end, hey, we know all this stuff, but I'm sorry to tell you we don't know how to grow it. <laughs> we, we really don't know the first step. And I realized, oh, well, that's pretty much all Jesus did. 
yep. was grow grit in the people that he met. Even needy people who came to him for healing or help, he had a second agenda with those people. He wanted to heal them, but he also wanted to grow their grit at the same time. So we can learn a lot from Jesus about how to grow grit in our own lives and in the lives of those people that we love if we pay attention to how he did that with people. One thing I created that I think is unique, it's never been done before, is I created a spiritual grit self-assessment. It's 12 questions that you answer as honestly as you can, and at the end of those answering those 12 questions, you actually get your own little spiritual grit score. It's, it's simply designed to give you a reflection about where you are on the continuum, because that's all of us. We're all on this continuum of grit. Some of us are gritty people already. Some of us know we struggle with grit. We struggle with resilience and perseverance. A lot of us have experienced trauma in life, and it's, it's sometimes more difficult if you've experienced trauma to develop grit in your life. So this is simply a, a, a simple way of trying to understand where you are, where are you on this continuum. It's called the Spiritual Grit Self-Assessment, and we are going to make it available to all of you listening way months and months in advance of when people who get this book find it in the book and that it's available online. You can take this right now. And in fact, we would love for you to do that. Uh, we would love to start having more and more people. I've given it to about uh, three dozen people so far in paper form to fill out, and it's been fascinating to read the results. Now we're going to have it in a digital form that will give you your score automatically after you're finished with it. So you can look for that link to the Spiritual Grit self-assessment on the podcast page that you access to, to listen to this podcast, and it has a it has an URL as well. I'll throw that out, but the easiest way is to click on the link. But it, it will be at mylifetree.com slash grit dash quiz. You can also just find it in your podcast description. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you're on our email list, it'll, it'll get sent to you in an email. But this is an exclusive thing that we're doing with you guys. Really excited. We're going to, once the book releases, we're going to have a bigger kind of assessment tool online that will have some other um, fun things that go along with it. But this is an early release thing. Well, I'm really excited about Rick's book coming up in March of 2018, and we're going to be talking about spiritual grit a lot more um, in the upcoming months um, as a result of that. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Also remember that you can find out more information about the things that we talked about here today in further detail at thejesuscenteredlife.com. Find our podcast section. This is Season 2, Episode 32. Um, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and we'll talk next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.